Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Kings and Queens, the podcast where we read, watch, play, and discuss history's favorite scream queens and literary kings of horror. I am your host, Nat, and this week we are diving into chapter 14 of Stephen King's Holly. Last week we saw just how alarmingly meticulous our villains are in this story, the planning, the intensive planning that goes into their abductions. This week, it looks like we jump back into Holly's side and watch her as she progresses through the case. If you have not already, I highly recommend going back to the beginning and reading all of the previous chapters with us. As a reminder, when you hear this sound, that means I have stopped reading from the text and am instead discussing thoughts, interpretation, things like that. When the sound replays, that means the mic is back to the author. Without further ado, let's begin Chapter 14 of Holly. Chapter 14, July 23rd, 2021. Part 1, page 123. Jerome calls Holly at quarter past six from outside the Steinman house and tells her of his adventures. He says he had to take Vera to the hospital himself because all of the Kiner ambulances, plus those from the city's emergency services department, were on COVID calls. He carried her to his car, wedged her into the passenger bucket seat, buckled her up, and drove to the hospital as fast as he dared. I rolled down the window, thinking the fresh air might revive her a little. I don't know if it worked, she was still pretty soupy when we got there, but it saved me the expense of getting the Mustang steam cleaned. She vomited twice on the way, but down the side, which will wash off. That stink is a lot harder to get off the carpeting. He tells Holly that Vera also vomited twice while she was seizing. I got her on her side before she spewed the second time, which was good because it cleared her airway, but at first she wasn't breathing. That scared the crap out of me. I gave her mouth to mouth. She might have started again on her own, but I was afraid she might not. You probably saved your life. Jerome laughs. To Holly it sounds shaky. I don't know about that, but I've rinsed my mouth out half a dozen times since, and I can still taste gin-flavored puke. When I got to her house, she said I could take off my mask. She'd had COVID and was chock full of antibodies. I hope she was right. I don't know if even a double dose of Pfizer would stand up to that kind of a soul kiss. Why are you still there? Didn't they keep her overnight? Are you kidding? There's not a single available bed in that place. There was a car crash guy lying in the hall, moaning and covered with blood. My mother died in a hospital just like that, Holly thinks. She was rich. Did they do anything for her? Pumped her stomach, and when she could say her name, they sent her home with me. No paperwork or anything, just your basic wham-bam, thank you, ma'am. Crazy. It's like all the systems are breaking down, you know? Holly says she does. I got her inside, she could walk, and to her bedroom. She said she could undress herself, and I took her word for it, but when I looked in, she was lying there fully dressed and snoring. Puke all down the side of my car, but she never got a speck on her clothes, which were nice. I think she dressed for me. You're probably right. You wanted to talk to her about her son, after all. The nurse said there were also a few half-digested pills in the stuff they pumped out of her. I'm not sure she was trying to kill herself, but she might have been. You saved her life, Holly says. No probably this time. This time, maybe. What about next time? Holly has no good answer for that. If you could have seen her, Holly. I mean, before she went down. Perfectly put together, totally coherent. But knocking back Jin like they were going to outlaw it next week. I could have left thinking that she was perfectly okay, except for a hangover tomorrow. 
How is that possible? She's built up a tolerance. Hers must be higher than most. You say Peter's skateboard was in his room? Yeah. There was a search party combing the park, looking for him, or his body, and one of them found it in the bushes. I didn't get a chance to ask her, but I'd bet you anything they found it in the thickets, which is from where the doll woman's bike was found. I think doll and Steinman might be related, Holly. I really do. Holly was about to make herself a Stouffer's chick beef on toast for supper, her go-to comfort food, when Jerome called. Now she dropped the frozen packet into a pot of boiling water. According to the box, you can microwave it, which is quicker, but Holly never does it that way. Her mother always said that microwaves were first-class food ruiners, and like so many of her mother's teachings, it has stuck with her only child. Oranges are gold in the morning and lead at night. Sleeping on your left side wears out your heart. Only sluts wear half-slips. Holly, did you hear me? I said I think the doll and the Steinman boy might. I heard you. I need to think about it. Did he have a helmet for skateboarding? I should have asked those boys, but I never thought of it. You didn't think of it because they weren't wearing them, Jerome says. Neither was Peter Steinman if he was going out to meet his friends that night. They would have called him a pussy. Really? Absolute. He didn't take his phone and he didn't wear his helmet. It was in his room next to his board. I don't think he ever wore it. It looked like it just came out of the box, not a scratch on it. This investigative team is so wonderful. It really highlights the importance of multiple perspectives, including Jerome in interviewing those boys and having them go to Vera Steinman's house, gives you all of that perspective and it makes probabilities easier to discern. Go Jerome and Holly. Holly stares at the bag of chipped beef turning over and over in the boiling water. What about the uncle in Florida? She answers her own question. Mrs. Steinman would have called him, of course. She did, and the detective in charge, Porter, also did. She tried, Holly, with herself and with her boy. Quit drinking for a year. Got another job. It's a fucking tragedy. Do you think I should stay over with her, Steinman? The living room smells pretty bad, and the couch doesn't look like what you'd call comfy, but I will if you think I should. No, go home. But before you do, I think you should go back in, check her breathing, and check the medicine cabinet. If she's got tranquilizers or pain pills or stuff for depression like Zoloft or Prozac, dump them down the toilet. The booze, too, if you want. But that's only a stopgap. She can always get new prescriptions and they sell booze everywhere. You know that, right? Holly has taken on almost a parental role as she kind of talks Jerome down and talks him through what the trauma that he's just experienced. He just watched a woman almost die in front of him. Um, and potentially intentionally. Holly right here is making sure that Jerome does not carry the burden of guilt with him. She can get new prescriptions. They sell booze everywhere. This is not your fault, nor is it your responsibility. She is acknowledging the limitations he has as a young man and making sure that he does not feel guilty for having such limitations. Go, Holly. Jerome sighs. Yeah, I do. Halls, if you could have seen her before she went down. I thought she was okay. Sad, for sure, and drinking too much, but I really thought... He trails off. You did what you could. She's lost her only child, and unless there's a miracle, she's lost him for good. She'll either cope, go back to her meetings, sober up, get on with her life, or she won't. That Chinese proverb about how you're responsible for someone if you save their life is so much proof. 
I know that's hard, but it's the truth. She stares at the boiling water, at least as I understand it. One thing might help her, Jerome says. What's that? Closure. Closure is a myth, she thinks, but doesn't say. Jerome is young. Let him have his illusions. As a 27-year-old reader, I found this to be extremely potent, and I don't necessarily disagree with Holly. However, I wouldn't use the term myth. I think closure exists, but I think it's a privilege that is not awarded to everybody. And Jerome doesn't need to know that yet. Chapter 14, part two, page 126. Holly eats her chipped beef on toast at her tiny kitchen table. She thinks it's the perfect meal because there's hardly anything to clean up. She feels bad for Jerome and terrible for Peter Steinman's mother. Jerome was right when he called it a tragedy, but Holly is wary of lumping the missing woman and the missing boy together. She knows perfectly well what Jerome is thinking about. A serial, like Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy or the Zodiac. But most serials are fundamentally uncreative, not capable of getting past some unresolved psychological trauma. They go on picking versions of the same victim until they're caught. The so-called Son of Sam killed a number of women with dark wavy hair, possibly because he couldn't kill Betty Broder, the woman who birthed him and then abandoned him. Holly is not wrong in her assumptions. If we were talking serial killers, they usually share a similar MO and their victims fit a mold. The Harrises have a specific goal in mind that is not tied to any one person, and that's why it's not presenting itself the way a typical serial killer would. Holly is right to be skeptical. Or maybe Berkowitz just likes seeing their heads explode, the Bohagas in her head remarks. Oof, Holly says. But Bonnie Ray and Peter Steinman are too different to be the work of one person. She's sure of it, or almost sure. She's willing to admit the similar locations and the abandoned modes of transportation, bike and skateboard. That reminds her to check with Penny about Bonnie's clothes. Are any of them missing? Did she possibly have a suitcase of duds stashed somewhere? Maybe with her friend Lakeisha? Holly takes out her notebook and scratches a reminder to ask that. She'll call tonight, try to set up an appointment with Lakeisha for the following afternoon, but she'll save her important questions for when they are face-to-face. -face. She rinses her plate and puts it in the dishwasher, the smallest magic chef the company makes, perfect for the single lady with no man in her life. She returns to the table and lights a cigarette. Nothing, in Holly's opinion, finishes a meal as perfectly as a smoke. They also aid the deductive process. Not that I have anything to deduce, she thinks. Maybe after I dig a little deeper, but all I can do now is speculate. Which is dangerous, she tells her empty kitchen. Silver bells tinkle, which means it's her personal. The office ring is the standard Apple xylophone. She expects it to be Jerome, with something he forgot to tell her, but it's Pete Huntley. You were right about Izzy. She was delighted to give me what she found out about the doll girl's credit and phone. On the Visa, no activity. On the Verizon account, ditto. Iz went back in to see if there were any charges in the last 10 days. There hadn't been. Her last credit card purchase were jeans from Amazon on June 27th. Isabel says when you call doll's phone, you can no longer leave a voicemail. Just get the robot telling you the mailbox is full. And there's no way to track it. So Bonnie or someone else took out the SIM card. It sure wasn't a case of non-payment. The phone bill was paid on July 6th, five days after the girl disappeared. All her bills were paid on the 6th. 
Ordinarily, the bank pays on the first Monday of the month, but that Monday was the official holiday, so... Was it Norbank? Yeah. How did you know? Initially, I thought, wow, Holly deduced more than I did. But it's not deduction, it's still speculation, and I want to include my speculation on this as well. They may not have taken out the SIM card, although I believe the Harrises are smart enough to do so. It's very possible that people have continuously tried to call her and or her phone has died after not being used and probably not being charged in a certain amount of time. I find it very hard to believe that the Harrises would not address personal communication in a timely manner for how long they've been doing this. It's where her mother works, or did until some of the branches shut down. She says when they reopen, she expects to be rehired. How much is in Bonnie Dahl's account? I don't know because Isabel doesn't. It would take a court order to get that info, and Is doesn't see the point in trying for one. Neither do I. It's not what's important. You know what is, right? Holly knows all right. Financially speaking, Bonnie Ray Dahl is dead in the water, which is probably a terrible metaphor under the circumstances. Pete, you sound better, not coughing so much. I feel better, but this COVID is a real ass kicker. I think if I hadn't gotten those shots, I'd be in the hospital. Or he quits there, no doubt thinking of his partner's mother who didn't get the shots. Go to bed early, drink fluids. Thank you, nurse. Holly ends the call and lights another cigarette. She goes to the window and looks out. It's still hours until dark, but the sunlight has taken on the evening slant that always feels rueful to her and a little sad. Another day older, another day closer to the grave, her mother used to say. Her mother who is now in her grave. She stole from me, Holly murmurs. She stole the trust fund I got from Janie. Not all of it, but most of it. My own mother. She tells herself that's the past. Bonnie Ray Dahl may still be alive, but no action on her visa. No calls made from her phone. Holly supposes a trained secret agent, one of John LeCar's Joes, could slip away like that, shedding the ties to modern life the way a snake sheds its skin. But a 24-year-old college librarian? No. Not unlikely. Just no. Bonnie Ray Dahl is dead. Holly knows it. As the reader, with no more privileged information that she has, I'm rooting for like 50-50 chance that Bonnie is dead. Rodney Harris really likes her, not only as a person, but he's also disgustingly physically attracted to her, and he wants to let her go based on the, the risk of her being personally employed with them. There's a chance that this may not go through. Chapter 14, Part 3, page 128. Holly has an ill-formed and totally unscientific idea that exercise can offset some of the damage she's doing to her body by renewing her smoking habit. So after speaking with Pete, she takes a two-mile walk in the lightning light, ending up at the south end of Deerfield Park. The playground is full of kids swinging and teeter-tottering, sliding and hanging upside down from the jungle gym. She watches them in an unguarded way no man could get away with in this century of sexual hyper-awareness, not consciously thinking about her new case, subconsciously thinking of nothing else. She has a nagging sensation that she's forgetting something, but refuses to chase it. Whatever it is will make itself known eventually. Now, those of you that read the Mr. Mercedes series and saw Holly before all of her personal growth, this is not a very Holly-esque tactic where she is 
actively choosing personal peace by letting it come to her instead of chasing it. That's new, that's positive, I might give it a shot myself. She calls Lakeisha Stone when she gets home. The woman who answers sounds exuberant and high on life. Other substances possible. In the background, Holly can hear music. It might be Otis Redding, and people laughing. There are occasional whoops. Other substances probable, Holly thinks. Hi, whoever you are, Lakeisha says. If this is some car warranty offer or how I can improve my credit rating, it's not. Holly introduces herself, explains why she's calling, and asks if she could meet with Lakeisha tomorrow afternoon, late-ish. She says she has to be up close to Uppsala Village on family business. Would that be convenient? It's a much less exuberant Lakeisha who says that she'd be happy to talk to Holly. She's with friends at the campground on Route 27, the one with the Indian name. Does Holly know it? Holly says she doesn't, and she doesn't say that these days Indian is considered pejorative at best, racist at worst. She says she's sure the GPS on her phone will take her right there. I absolutely love that Holly will personally acknowledge um, flaws in her opinion or her perspective in other people, but does not go around continuously correcting people. She finds the time and place. Now, I did have to look it up just because I was curious. I obviously know the context of the word pejorative, but I looked it up and it specifically defines expressing contempt or disapproval. And honestly, in today's day and age, I'm really relating it to the, uh, the Redskins that have since changed their name due to political backlash. Nothing about Bonnie? No word? No word at all, Holly says. Then I don't know how I can help you, Miss Gibney. You can help me with one thing right now. Do you think she ran away? God, no. Her voice wavers. When she speaks again, all traces of exuberance are gone. I think she's dead. I think some sick bastard raped her and killed her. Chapter 14, Part 4, page 129. That night, Holly prays on her knees being sure to name check her friends and saying that she's sorry she resumed her smoking habit and, and hopes that God will help her quit again soon. But not just yet. She tells God she doesn't want to think about her mother tonight, what Charlotte did and why she did it. She ends by asking for any help God can give her in the case of the missing woman and concludes by saying she hopes that Bonnie Ray is still alive. She gets into bed and looks up into the darkness, wondering what was nagging her at the park. As sleep approaches, ready to take her in, it comes to her. Have there been other disappearances in the vicinity of Deerfield Park? She thinks it might be interesting to find out. End of chapter 14. Ah! This chapter is both exciting and frustrating as the reader. She is so close, but she needs to open her mind to the possibility of seriality in nature for these crimes. But wondering about location, I think, is going to be the key to getting Holly where she needs to go. My heart absolutely breaks for Vera Steinman knowing that her son is deceased, which I think deep down she knows, but probably won't acknowledge, and I don't know that she should at this point. Jerome, as a character, really came through in the last chapter or two as he's trying to help this woman navigate everything, and he's the one who I think is going to open Holly's mind to see reality. Once again, just an incredible chapter, and I can't wait to see where this goes from here. Thank you, as always, for joining me, and I hope you come back next week for Chapter 15. It's okay if you don't. Just remember, it's all a bunch of hocus-pocus, 
Don't forget to like and subscribe. Mm -hmm.